Welcome to the 44th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan Dillinger and I'm part of the marketing team of Active Motive and your host for this podcast. Our special guest for this episode is Monica Dues from the University of Michigan. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Monica, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you did your PhD work at Cold Spring Harbor with Gregory Hennen from 2004 to 2008. You then moved on to New York University to, your, to do your postdoc. And since 2014, you are assistant professor at the University of Michigan. Um, a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Thank you so much for having me first. Um, that's a really, um, that's, it's always the question everybody asks. And um, so I grew up in Italy and um, my, my dad, um, my, my, my mom actually never got to go to school because uh, she was a woman. So she has like a middle school education. And um, my dad um, ended up sort of uh, running uh, away to Canada as an immigrant. And while he was in Canada, um, you know, while working as a carpenter, as a cook, um, pumping gas to support himself, he would go to school at night. And eventually he managed to learn English and started to go to college. And his aspiration was to become a scientist. But then he had to come back to Italy when my grandma was sick. And um, when he was in Italy, he decided to go to med school instead of continuing with science. And I think... When I was born, um, you know, he um, he still had this dream of becoming a scientist, and um, he strongly influenced me. Meaning that I got microscopes and um, you know science books, and so I think a large part of that was um, the fact that you know my dad sort of had a, a dream that he might be dreaming, might be living vicariously through me. But I also think there was. Uh, Probably another part that is what really appealed to my heart is that I think science, I really love aesthetics and, and, and beauty and um, colors and glitter and, and everything that's uh, very visually appealing. And um, I grew up in a very rural area in Italy, north, uh, northeastern Italy, and uh, my grandpa was a farmer. And so most of my time was spent with him in the fields and catching bugs and uh, collecting flowers. And um, I think somehow I, my mind, I associated science, not just with the books, but also with the beauty of the natural world. And I think that's really what appealed to my heart and the fact that I can never stop learning. <laughs> um, so, so I think that's why um, That's why I chose to go into biology, although for a large part of my life, I really wanted to be a philosophy professor. Um, but somehow, you know, the course of life steered me and kept me into biology. Yeah. Yeah, coming to your, to your science, that centers around the question whether uh, what, you, what we eat uh, changes our behavior. And I want to start in 2011, where you were first author on a paper titled Taste Independent Detection of the Caloric Content of Sugar in Drosophila. And maybe a first, a more general question to that. Um, you are relying on Drosophila melanogaster as a model organism. Um, why is Drosophila so suitable for your kind of experiments? Um, I, I also have a heart and a brain answer to this question. So <laughs> my, my brain question is that, my answer, not question. My brain answer is that um, 
Drosophila is a really compelling model organism to study because of the formable genetics, the short generation um, time, the uh, really incredible number of uh, genetic tools and knowledge that people have accumulated for um, you know, a century or more uh, at this point. And it also has this incredible wealth of behaviors, um, genetic conservation in terms of uh, many diseases. And so for um, some of the questions I was interested in answering, um, it was the ideal model because I could really get to um, causal links, not just correlation, by manipulating the gene, adding them, removing them, um, activating, silencing different circuits, and then really trying to forge a causal link rather than saying that these two things are associated. And so um, that's why the fly is such a great model. My um, my hard answer is that when I was, I think, 17, I read a book called uh, Time, Love and Memory, which was the biography of neurogeneticist Seymour Benzer. And I just fell in love with Drosophila neurogenetics and specifically um, yeah, with this, the genetic study of, of behavior. And so that's you know, one of the reasons I ended up going to the United States and, and study neuroscience. And so part of me is still fascinated by um, you know, everything that Benzer and the people he trained and the field he created, uh, everything uh, it's been accomplished. So coming again to the aforementioned paper, so this was. I think the start of your uh, studies uh, on Drosophila and the taste of Drosophila. So um, what did you do and what did you find there? Yeah, so I um, my PhD was in epigenetics, so specifically on encoding RNA with um, Greg Hannon. But uh, when I was um, when I was at Cosplay Harbor, I was lonely and I really missed my family in Italy. And so my then boyfriend, who's now my husband, suggested I get a dog. And so I got two dogs. And um, I call them cupcake and sprinkles because I really like sweets. And um, towards the end of my PhD, as I was trying to figure out what I should do with my life and what I should study with my postdoc, and I knew I wanted to go back to neuroscience, my dogs happened to eat about um, half a kilo or a pound of uh, uh, dog treats, like chicken jerky, that I had forgotten on top of the table. And I, they made themselves quite sick. They're tiny dogs, they're Bichon Fusay, so they're probably you know five kilos, maybe four kilos. And um, I couldn't figure out how they could eat so much. And so I really got interested in um, studying feeding behavior. And so, um, uh, and really in this idea of like hunger and satiety, what are the genes that control them? What are the circuit mechanisms? But it sort of really started for my dogs, like shocking me with how much they could eat. And so when I joined the lab of Greg Sue at the university, uh, at New York University, he uh, was interested in starting a feeding project. And a paper had just come out at the time showing that um, uh, mice could tell the caloric value of sugars independently of taste so that there was a completely different system in the brain that was uh, tuned towards energy density, essentially, rather than just palatability. And so we uh, wanted to know if the same thing was also present in flies, because um, it's, it seems you know, an important feature to have. The sensory system is uh, really fast, and so animal can use it to rapidly detect food in the environment, to forage for it. But you also need a system that tells you if how, how the the essential 
the quality of the food you eat in terms of the nutrient and also caloric density. And so um, in that, in, in those experiments, we use flies that um, couldn't taste sugar as well. So they were taste effective. They had mutations in some of the sweet taste receptor um, genes. And so then we gave them a choice between fake sugar and real sugar. Um, and we had different combinations. And then we asked whether they would prefer the real sugar to the fake sugar. Now, because they couldn't tell the difference if via taste from the two different sugars, then if they could tell a difference, it would be because of another system. And so in fact, when those animals were motivated to eat because they were hungry, they could tell the difference and always chose the sugar um, that was caloric. And in fact, even if you, have normal wild type flies and you give them a choice between the two and you trick them. So you make the fake sugar sweeter. So technically, you know, they would always go for what's sweeter because it tastes better. Uh, But if they're hungry, so when they're not hungry, they always pick whatever it's more palatable. And then if you make them really hungry, then they would um, uh, pick uh, the caloric density over palatability. And so um, since then, and many other people were working on this problem and also found that um, indeed there are these parallel systems um, that you know, eventually work together because it's important to, um, to tell the different qualities of food, such as this nutrient density or the palatability. Yeah, you also worked on on like uh, the cause of this effect because how do you know whether it's the brain or the gut that makes the decision of uh, what what to take? Yeah, so I think right now we know so much more, and some of the neural circuits have been mapped in mammals too, and um, it seems that there might be some differences. So that there are gut based mechanisms that are able to detect the nutrient. Um, levels of sugars and then to communicate it to the brain but there are also brain systems that are doing that and that's sort of what i focused uh for my postdoc and so i was really interested in neurons that essentially um they're called glucosensing because they use glucose not just as energy but as as information um uh, they're activated by glucose and then they they use the different levels of glucose to secrete different neuropeptides or neurotransmitters to then uh, carry out um, a certain behavior. And so I study a set of neurons that um, are able to detect the caloric, uh, the caloric value of sugar or the nutrient value by directly being activated by sugar. And then in these neurons, the glucose metabolites um, you know, were not just used for fuel, but again, they were used as energy to create um, a, a cascade of activity that ended up with the secretion of a neuropeptide, which then made the fly mouth move so that they could keep pecking at the food, but also made the gut move so that they could sort of push the food along because mm-hmm. the fly is quite tiny. And so as it's eating, it's important that the food, the kind of more volume components of food gets excreted so they can keep eating. So more like a vacuum almost. Um, so I sort of map some of the circuit mechanisms of this. Yeah, you then also opened your own lab and then you shifted gears a little bit because you then were looking for a connection of sweet taste and obesity. Um, and the results were published in 2019 in Nature Communications. Um, so what did you do there and what did you find? Mm-hmm. So um, I did shift gears, but not on purpose. So when we wanted, we wanted to look at the effect of the nutrient environment 
of the uh, feeding behavior of animals. And that is because from our own experience, but also from a lot of data from different model organisms, we know that we just don't eat the same ways depending on the composition of our diets or also environmental um, environmental um, different features like the temperature or the levels of stress we have. And so I wanted really to go back to my epigenetics roots and try to um, join together my two Faustian love of neuroscience and epigenetics and have a neuroepigenetics lab. And so um, we were doing some experiments where we wanted to test the ability of animals that had been given a high sugar diet to detect nutrients. Um, and um, we, we always test the uh, taste sensation of, of uh, the animals towards different sugars before we do these experiments as a control. Um, and what I noticed uh, when I was doing this experiment is that the flies on a high sugar diet just couldn't taste the sugar as well. Can I interrupt you here for a second? Uh, because how do you... I mean, you can't ask the flies how they taste, right? I mean, um, how do you measure the taste of, of the flies, how they, they taste it? Mm -hmm. or, or mouse. You can only ask yeah. a human, right? Um, so um, you essentially um, look at the proboscic extension. So flies have, uh, because flies don't eat by some ordinary pizza and somebody put in, you know, a plate of pizza in front of them, they have to be able to forage for food and the sensory system is really uh, beautifully suited for that. They, they actually have taste receptors on the outside of their lips or their proboscis. They also have it on their legs and on their wings and other parts of their body. And um, when the fly uh, touches the food, say with their legs or uh, with their proboscis, they will extend it to eat food. Um, so it, it's almost like for us, um, you know, when we would taste something good, we smack our lips and we, our, our, we're like licking the food, like with the ice cream It's kind of similar for a fly and also mice, um, when they eat something good, have facial expressions that are of pleasure and okay. uh, contentment. And so you can sort of think of the proboscis extension as a, as a reflex where when you touch the, the taste receptor, the fly will extend the proboscis. And so it's a quantitative behavior that you can measure from zero when they're not extending to one, when it's like a full extension, they're ready to eat. But you can also think of it in a form of essentially almost like emotional reflection of the animal desire uh, for the food and the animal liking. Um, and you can quantify so this then between, and you can quantify this then between one and zero. So that's that's also yes. nice, right? So yeah, so a hundred percent is like the fly can extends its proboscis when it's stimulated, and you can stimulate the fly proboscis with different. Um, foods, um, different concentration of the food. So we stimulated with very low sugar, like zucchini essentially, and then a strawberry, which is quite sweet and something super sweet, almost like soda or, you know, iced tea essentially. And then um, when we were doing that, we saw that there was between a 20 to 50% decrease in this proboscis extension. And, and then that was I was just really shocked. In fact, I think it was like dinner time and I took a picture um, of the data and I sent it to my student, my first student at the time. And I was like, well, that's really crazy. And then I went up to one of my colleagues um, and I was telling her, this sounds really insane. Like, I don't know if it's a fly thing. And she's like, oh no, there's some studies in uh, human and rodents that have um, shown this. And so I got really, really interested in this. 
Um, you know, probably going back to the fact that my dog devoured um, a pound of dog jerky, you know, there was something special about the quality of the food. And so that is how we started studying that. Um, now, in, on top of studying that behaviorally, we also did some imaging where we essentially were looking directly at the responses of the neurons uh, to sugar. So we open a little window in the fly brain, we put the fly under a microscope, we touch the fly proboscis with sugar while it's under the microscope, and we express um, protein that becomes more green. Uh, it's called uh, G-CAMP when um, there is high calcium inside the cell. And uh, when neurons are activated, there's high calcium. So there's more fluorescence. And so you can use the change in fluorescence as a proxy for neural activity. And so what we found is that the taste wasn't just lower at the behavioral level, but it was also lower um, at, the, at the physiological level. So the neurons just weren't responding as potently to sugar as they could. Yeah, you then also look deeper into the, the mechanism of all that, um, of how sweet taste is processed. So what did you find there and what is the connection then uh, to obesity? Yeah, so we one question we have is that, well, um, you know, the flies have been on a high sugar diet for seven days. And by that time, they accumulate a lot of fat, which uh, we use as a proxy for obesity in flies. And um, so what we did, we use um, flies that were uh, genetically um, obese so that uh, they essentially not break. So these are flies that are um, have a mutation, they cannot uh, break down any fats okay. in their body. And so uh, at on a control diet, on the fly standard diets, they had house as much fat as the flies, uh, as the wild type, wild type flies on a high sugar diet. And so when we tested them, they had perfectly normal taste. So we knew it wasn't just obesity per se. And we did the converse experiment when we use flies that are genetically lean. Now, these are flies that cannot store fat. And so even when they're on a high sugar diet, they will never accumulate fat. And so they were always the same, essentially body mass. Um, and those flies still decrease their taste when exposed to the high sugar dietary environment. And so through that and other experiments, we knew it was um, sugar and not the obesity that essentially um, promoted this uh, decrease in taste. Um, then we turned towards looking at fake versus real sugars. So was it sweetness or was it the metabolic property of sugar? And so when we gave flies um, a really high, a very sweet diet, essentially the same concentration of sweetener that you will find in diet soda, um, they also didn't show any decrease in taste. And it was only when we gave them Uh, up to certain concentration of glucose, fructose, or sucrose that we saw the decrease in taste. And so we knew it should be uh, something to do with the metabolic property of sugar. So this means so, uh, um, if you take, uh, if you eat a sweeter food, then you need to eat more of that to still have the same sensation of the taste and then you get fat. Is that the, the short? Yeah, so... That is a short, that is eventually what we found. We follow up on some of the neural mechanisms and we found that the, the flies on a high sugar diet did eat more. In fact, flies have two meals per day. They have a breakfast and a dinner and both of those meals were bigger. 
and especially the later part of the meal. So when you're eating a meal and the same is true for flies, um, there's uh, the flies eat very voraciously at the beginning of the meal, but towards the end of the meal is important to sort of decrease the feeding rate um, so that you can terminate the meal and then um, wait for this satiety factors, which is mostly in the gut to kick in. And those are, you know, depend on, uh, depend on the digestive process. So it takes a lot longer, but it's important that you stop terminating your meal. An animal stops terminating the meal before all these digestive signals arrive. Otherwise you would be eating for hours. And so that process actually involves the ability to associate sensory cues, such as the sweetness, the texture of food with its nutrient qualities. It's called satiation to differentiate it from satiety, which is the process of not eating or halting eating between two different meals, you know, breakfast and dinner. And so we found, we have known for a while that some, this processing of sensory information is really important for satiety, uh, satiation, sorry. And so um, we looked at some of the circuits that are involved in this process, especially dopaminergic circuits in the brain, and found that um, they also were essentially dulled by the high sugar diet because of the decrease in the sensory responses to the food. And that um, that is what essentially drives increased eating. It, I don't think it's so much because the flies are not getting as much as a uh, pleasure out of the sugar, but it's because they cannot use the sensory cues to modulate and predict the size of their meals. So they end up eating longer because they have to rely on very likely digestive processes or satiety factors to, to terminate their meal. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Um, so, I got interested in your work because I read a paper last November <laughs> and this now leads into because right now we didn't talk too much about epigenetics but since it's an epigenetics mm -hmm. podcast um, I think that's that's where we we want to end up in and yeah last year you started to look at the contribution of epigenetic factors in this process so which epigenetics epigenetic factors did you find that play a role here and uh, how do they influence this process mm -hmm. So um I mentioned before that Uh, we found that it was sugar metabolites that had uh, that essentially dampened the ability of animals to taste. We did a metabolomic study to try to identify some of these factors that were changing. And we found uh, that um, uh, this particular metabolic pathway, it's called the exosamine biosynthesis pathway, it uh, was necessary and sufficient to modulate the ability of flies and the taste neurons to respond to sugars. Now, this pathway, uh, it's not a metabolic pathway that uses sugar metabolites for energy or fuel. Again, it's one of these informational pathways uh, where sugar metabolites are used to post-translationally modified proteins to change their activity. And a lot of the proteins it modifies, uh, that this, the, the main enzyme, it's called OGT for oglycolic transferase, um, are transcription factors. It turns out that OGT was rediscovered, it was discovered uh, several decades ago in mammals, and it has a really important role in the nutrient regulation of transcription and um, the pathogenesis of like nutrient-related diseases like heart disease, kidney disease, obesity, diabetes, and so on. But um, OGT was rediscovered um, a little over 10 years ago as a member of the polycomb repressive complex. Uh, so as a polycomb protein, as uh, um, it's called um, super sex combs in flies. 
And uh, so we got really interested in um, trying to map some of these mechanisms. And because we found that OGT was necessary and sufficient to link the dietary environment to these behavioral changes in, in animals, we then started looking for transcription factors and chromatin proteins that had been previously associated with OGT, including polycomb. Um, the reason why we decided to also look for this transcriptional um, transcription factor and chromatin modifiers is that we found that the animal ability to taste is essentially irreversibly uh, changed. And so if you take the fly that's been on a high sugar diet for a week and then move it back to their healthy diet um, up to 20 days, that's what we tried, but a fly will live six to eight weeks. Um, so it's quite a long time. They actually don't recover their ability to taste. And so we thought there must be something really fundamental that it's uh, rewiring or reprogramming the cell. And we knew the cells weren't dying, so we know it's not as a simple explanation as that. So when we, we first um, mutated, uh, we used mutant for different transcription factor and chromatin factors that had been associated with OGT. And we found that if mutants for the PRC2, the polycom repressive complex 2, which catalyze um, histone 3 uh, lysine 27 methylation, uh, this animal essentially did not, uh, their taste did not change on a high sugar diet. They had normal taste, this mutants on a controlled diet. If you put them on a high sugar diet, they retained it. And because they retained their taste, they stayed leaned and because they didn't overeat. And so then we did the opposite experiments when uh, we overexpressed the same components. And we found that now we could recapitulate the effects of the diet environment, even in the absence of the diet environment. And, and so they were both necessary and sufficient to uh, essentially mimic different types of dietary environment. And we also found that they weren't just acting in different parts of the fly body, but they were required specifically in the 60 taste neurons of the fly. And so then we wanted to ask, well, what are they doing? Um, how are they changing the taste uh, in, in, this, uh, in the cells? Uh, and how did this turn out? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, we essentially found that the we use um, some pretty um, cool techniques where we can um, measure the footprints that uh, one of the polycom proteins we use called polycom-like um, is leaving on the DNA of um, our taste cells. And we only have 60 cells per animals. They're encasing chitin. They're really hard to access. And so uh, this technique really gave us the opportunity to ask this question. It's called um, DAMID. Um, so what we found when we looked at the footprints of this um, polycom repressive complex 2 via PCL, this polycom-like, we found that it got redistributed in the high sugar diet environment. So the PRC2 moved from repressing some genes to repressing others. And what we found is that actually the gene that it moved, the, the, the gene that showed this um, change in occupancy were transcription factors involved in uh, neuronal development. And so for the people that study polycomb, that's not really surprising. Uh, because that's one of the fundamental roles. But, um, you know, we're not studying development or stem cells. We're studying uh, 
different, fully differentiated post-mitotic cells. And we saw this difference in developmental programs. Uh, so it's essentially what's happening is that the taste neurons are losing a little bit of their identity as taste neurons. We don't know what they're becoming, uh, but that was really fascinating for us because there's this idea that, um, so, so neurons are a little special. Well, I mean, I, I think they're the best, right? Because I'm a neuroscientist, but they're also a little special because unlike other cells, neurons have to constantly maintain their identity. So they have to constantly express the transcription factors that keep them who they are as a neuron, their neurotransmitter identity, their biophysical properties, the type of channels. And so this, there's this idea that maybe the plasticity of neurons, uh, you know, this changes in plasticity that you get with different environments is actually due to small changes in in these neurodevelopmental programs. And so this is exactly what we think it's happening, that polycomb is linking a dietary environment to the plasticity of these neurons by tweaking this neurodevelopmental program. So some kind of reprogramming is going on in those neurons somehow. somehow. Yes. Um, do yeah. you also know what, what makes the targeting of the genes of this polycomb uh, uh, complex then? So this sort of goes, this is a question we're trying to address now, and it sort of goes back to um, these um, looking at links with metabolism and epigenetics. So a lot of people, uh, I mean, this has been studied for a, quite a long time, um, especially in prokaryotes, but it's been sort of rediscovered, I would say, in, in eukaryotic and become more mainstream, uh, showing that Uh, metabolites, again, are not just fuel, they're also information. They can direct and change the direct gene expression programs. They can modify, um, they can modify histones. So if you think acetylation, methylation, uh, but a lot of other uh, different modifications are coming from uh, cellular metabolism. They can uh, change the activity of transcription factors. They can change the activity of chromatin modifiers. They can change uh, modifications of RNA, like M6A. They can change the stability of RNA and proteins. So there's a there's really profound link between metabolites and cell physiology. And so the, 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 the fact that OGT and polycomb are connected uh, is really what drove us to polycomb. But now we're trying to figure out, well, is OGT, we know that higher OGT activity is required for this change in taste. And we know that without OGT uh, in the cell, we polycomb can induce this taste changes. And so there is a, direct, a, a connection there. And so now we're trying to prove whether that connection is direct by looking at modification of polycomb by Uh, BioGT, which others have described, but also trying to look directly for the presence of OGT uh, to chromatin. You know, so the idea that metabolic enzymes can not just change the proteins that are modifying the chromatin and DNA, but also maybe um, recruit them to um, different parts of the genome. But this is something we're still investigating right now. It's Being pretty slowed down with COVID, yeah. uh, but hopefully in the next year we'll be able to put something on bioarchive on this. 
Oh, yeah, that's very interesting, and we are happy to read about that. So that also um, answered my question uh, or my next question to what are your next steps? So this is basically then the, the main um, road you want to follow in the next years. Um, yeah, so my lab, about half of my lab, I would say, is a circuit neuroscience lab where we're seen trying to map the circuit mechanism or the neuro underpinning. Uh, we're really interested in satiety, association, not satiety. So not just like the satiety factors, the hormones, but really how does the brain decide how to control the size of meals? Because we know that the size of meals is one of the main determinants of how much we eat. And we know that's uh, what diets that are high in fat and sugar are actually changing. And so in terms of, um, and th that's quite important. Uh, but um, of course, my, my first love is always uh, neuroepigenetics. And so one of the things we're trying to follow up uh, in different ways is this idea of the nutrient environment reprogramming cells. And so we're not just looking at the taste neurons, but we're looking at other circuits. And also we're really interested um, in looking at neurodevelopment uh, in, in embryos because um, we know that there are some association between uh, cognitive and uh, neural um, conditions in uh, children and the essentially uh, nutrient environment of the parents. And so I'm not just talking about intergenerational studies here, but I'm just really interested in the idea of neurodevelopment, how the neurodevelopment is changed by the nutrient environment of the parents, which also goes back to the idea of reprogramming and development. So when I prepared this interview um, and I looked at your resume, um, it looks like you also have been interested in outreach. Um, and on your website, um, you also list two podcasts um, as the one we do now. Um, can you tell us um, a little bit more about your ambitions in outreach and about your podcasts you're doing? Yeah, so um, I podcast and audiobook can me company all the times I spent in the cold room first as a graduate student at the microscope. Uh, and later on, uh, also at the microscope and in behavior rooms when I was a postdoc. Um, and so I, I love podcasts. I also um, I also really like podcasts not as, as a way to spend time when I'm doing, you know, less um, mentally involved experiments, but also I think because it helps to bridge uh, sort of the everyday process of science, which can be sometimes tedious and heartbreaking to the more general aspects of science that I think we all have, we all got into, you know, this curiosity and the learning and sort of like the big pictures ideas. And so um, I, uh, I wanted to, so I, I wanted to try to have a podcast. And one of the idea was to uh, first teach my undergraduate students. I'm a college professor and I teach one big class that's 400 people and a small class that's 30 people, it's on neuroepigenetics. So I wanted uh, my students who are mostly seniors to start, start moving into their new role in society as they graduated, not as uh, just learners, but also as, as teachers. Um, and so um, teach them to try to communicate science to the public, you know, like everything they learn in this last four years, where are they going to tell us about it? But also their patients, a lot of them want to become doctor or healthcare providers. And so the final project in this class is for students to create a podcast in pairs. And the first year of this class, which was 
four years ago in 2015, when I started my lab, uh, they named it NeuroEpic. And so if you search NeuroEpic, you can find about 30 different podcasts. You know, they're not beautifully produced, but the information is quite good. There's an essay that accompanies the podcast or some interviews, and they talk about uh, different topics like the connection between gene regulation, RNA regulation, epigenetics, and environmental effects from lead to food to depression. Uh, I think there's one on meditation. Um, so that's one podcast uh, my students do, and I just help them sort of uh, put the put the material together. The other podcast it's um, something I did with the University of Michigan. It's called How to Science, and uh, it's very edited and beautifully produced with music and you know concise content. Uh, and that was done in collaboration with Liz Wasson, who was a science writer in Michigan. And the purpose of that podcast was to uh, try to um, sort of peel the curtain of academia. I call it breaking the fourth wall of academia. Academia can be very insular. We use hard terms and, you know, who who are scientists, we all have stereotypes of what a scientist should look like. And people always told me, like they told them uh, many other people that I don't look like a scientist. And, um, and so I wanted to sort of peel away the curtain and let people see who scientists are. Um, and so part of that is uh, interviewing people and not asking them just about the science, but what makes them tick, uh, their journey to science, and because I'm pre-tenure, I had to take a break for that to really focus on my scholarship. But um, we're going back to it um, hopefully soon. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to listen to that, you can go on um, everywhere you get your podcast and it's called How to Science. Yeah, we'll put the, the notes in the show notes and then everybody can click on that. And my vision was always that every PhD student who finished uh, his PhD and, and wrote up his thesis should do an interview after that because... Uh, How many people read the the, PhD, the the thesis, right? It's like two or three people. But if it's out there as a podcast, as an interview, you could like reach at least like 10, 20, 50 people. So this would, like grade schools should really go, go into that and make a podcast for every PhD student that finishes. That would be a great idea. I had some of the undergrads that graduated from my lab made a podcast about their honor thesis. And so that, that would be really cool to have it for graduate students. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one would be, did you at one point of your career face the situation that you have reached a dead end and did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Um, hmm, interesting question. Uh, well, yes, I think maybe every day there's uh, many more questions that uh, many more questions and I guess there, there's many more problems that ways to solve a question in science. Um, but um, I think I've been lucky to live uh, through a time of such amazing technological development um, and tool development, both in neuroscience and in, in epigenetics. And also at a time to live, uh, to live at the time where there is such a gracious and generous community where people shared with us tools ahead of publications, uh, put their papers on bioarchive. And um, I don't know, uh, to have a more democratic community. I mean, I hope we're building that in science where we can work together and help each other uh, to try to really, uh, you know, 
amass the beauty and the mysteries of nature rather than compete with each other. And so although there are always so many things that don't work and so many ways in which, you know, I would like to, uh, to look at a problem, there are always different ways to be creative or to think out of the box and to just collaborate um, with people. So in the last 40 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or even something that we might have missed in this interview? Um, oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I think the most important findings of our lab is that we, what we already know in a way is that the nutrient environment is really important. and the food goes away really fast after the way we eat, but it has really lasting effects on our bodies. And this means that um, food intake is not just a choice. It's a product of uh, many different experiences, some of which might have happened early on before we were even born, some of which happen as we develop, some of which happen as we're adults. And so, um, You know, we really should think about as a society when uh, we we discriminate uh, and also, I guess, we put a lot of money into things like weight loss and the way we look or uh, exercise for weight loss, that uh, it's more fundamental than that. And, and there are a lot of also inequities in the way, uh, in food availability, in the structure of our city. So there... Studying feeding behavior for me, it's something very interdisciplinary that uh, really gets to, uh, you know, the very, a very human question. But at, at the same time, I think it's really important to think about in very biochemical and scientific terms and really uncover um, some of the effects these foods are having on our bodies and some of which are lasting. And so to maybe shift the focus to from, you know, weight loss and the way we look um, towards trying to understand what is good nutrition, how do we give it to as many people as possible, how do we collaborate with people that build cities, with the people that make our food, with the food supplies to make it not just sustainable, but also optimal to really decrease the burden of disease. Our work is only a small little droplet of that, but I think taking a very uh, a very hard science approach to different components of food is one way to go about that. So thank you, Monica, for your time and for being on this show. Thank you so much for having me. This was the 44th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. For our 50th episode, which is coming up, we want to do a question-answer episode around epigenetics. So please submit your questions to podcastdetectivemotif.com or post it on Twitter to epigenetics underscore pod. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout-out on a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.